Welcome to episode 16 of Ask Paul Kirtley, which comes to you from Patagonia. Hello and welcome. This episode comes to you from Patagonia and I'm in Argentina. I'm on the Argentinian side of Patagonia. Behind me is the iconic Mount Fitzroy and not far behind that is the border between Argentina and Chile. I'm in this area doing some hiking and I thought since I've got my uh, good camera with me, I thought I'd stop and record an episode of Ask Paul Kirtley because I haven't done one for a few weeks and I've got a few questions mounting up. Um, I haven't had Wi-Fi for a few days where I was staying further down. I had Wi-Fi, downloaded some questions. I've got those on my phone. So without further ado, we're going to go through some of those questions. And when I get the chance, I'll upload this episode um, so you get the answers. Okay, let's have a look. Um, I've come in from the uh, riverbed where I was walking and down that river valley because it's really quite breezy down there and there's a lot of noise coming from the river. So I've got my back to the wind here. So hopefully my microphone um, doesn't pick up too much wind noise, but apologies in advance if there's a bit of wind noise on today's episode because Patagonia is really quite windy. Um, today we're going to be talking about is event a good material for jackets? Um, how do we get carbs from the land year round? We've been asked similar questions to that before, but we're going to come back to that. Um, surplus gear for bushcraft. Um, small sticks, logs, fire lays, and inexperienced fire lighters and fire managers and fire and religion. That's quite an interesting question. There's, there's a couple of parts to that. I read these earlier. Okay, so first question comes um, from Ross Fenyon on Twitter and he asks, um, Paul, I need a waterproof for walking in the UK as an, and as I'm always too hot, I'm thinking of event, um, this material may be uh, better for me. Any thoughts? Okay, Ross, well, um, yeah, event is a good waterproof material. Uh, Rab, I think, are the main uh, user of that material. At least they're the most prominent user to my mind and um, I've got a couple of RAB jackets, um, one that I've had for many years, which is made of Event, and another one that's a little bit more recent that I use for winter uh, walking and winter mountaineering. And they're both very good. They're both very breathable. Um, I do have, um, I've had Gore-Tex XCR in the past and uh, my Norina Recon jacket that I use a lot for winter um, ski tours, that is Gore-Tex XCR. I had a Berghaus Gore-Tex XCR jacket years ago as well that was good. Um, and Gore-Tex Pro Shell is pretty good as well, although I do find that a bit more sweaty than Event, I have to say. I get quite warm even in the winter. Um, and um, particularly if I'm going up steep hills, I tend to generate quite a lot of heat. I'm always quite warm in cold conditions. 
and therefore I find I need to vent quite a lot. As you can see, I'm wearing a, a vaporized, uh, windproof, uh, warm top today, which is very good in these windy conditions. Um, I prefer that to wearing a waterproof as a windproof when I can, because I find waterproofs quite sweaty a lot of the time. And I like to keep my waterproofs in good condition for when it's really raining, rather than just wearing them generally, because um, they, they last longer and they give you better protection when you really need it. But Event is good, I use it. Um, the Rab jacket I've got with me in my pack today um, is an event jacket and the one that I keep for specifically for winter um, in the UK mountains is an event jacket as well and I find they breathe very well so if you're looking for a breathable jacket good quality you're gonna have to pay a reasonable amount for for rab jackets in particular I've got no connection to rab by the way other than having used them for many years um, yeah go for it um, get one that suits you in terms of the weight and the specification that you need in terms of durability um, versus lightweight and and enjoy it and look after it and reproof it every now and again with some nick wax and it should serve you well so thanks for the question ross next question um, comes from mark and Mark says, uh, this is about carbs from the land. And we did have a question a little while ago about uh, carbs from the land, Mark, um, but I'll follow on and I'll refer to that answer if I need to. Um, Dear Paul, I'd like to thank you for being such an inspiration. Yeah, uh, you're very welcome. Um, that's very kind of you, some kind words there, thank you. Um, the question is about the theory of being able to live off the land and, He's talking about pre-farming periods um, and, he, and specifically asks, consumption of starches seem to be an essential for maintaining enough energy. It seems that just eating game with a side dish of some greens doesn't cut it. Um, I'm having trouble finding information on how to gather starches, where to find them and how to process them. A big question is what plants look for in winter, cattail roots and the process of water leaching uh, it starches from roots, for example, is mentioned in many books, but the only one mentioned, uh, only one method I come across regularly. Another plant I know about are the roots of burdock, but they seem to be seasonal, uh, unless you don't mind chewing through fibres. Thinking of it, could I leach them too? In the Northern Hemisphere, what plants deliver the most starch-based energy resources in relation to its gathering time, and how do we process them? What is the reality of being able to gather enough starches in the wild so we can maintain our energy levels? Thanks for all your effort. Uh, put into your work and thank you for sharing it with us all. Mark, well you, again you're very welcome Mark and that's a very good question, it's a, a thoughtful question and it's quite a long question so I'll do my best to answer it in the time available. Um, first off check out one of the previous episodes, I think it was episode 14, it's the one where it gets dark <laughs> during the time that I'm talking and there's a question there from Steve and Steve asked about gathering starches and whether or not it's worth cooking them. I talk around the subject a bit in there. It doesn't answer your question specifically, but I talk around the subject. And if you haven't listened to that one, definitely listen to that uh, episode 14. It's towards the end of that episode, if I remember rightly. Um, also, if you haven't, check out um, on my blog, there are a couple of articles which answer this question more specifically, although not maybe as fully as you would like. The first question is one about uh, realistic survival foraging and there's a there's a uh, acronym in there which um, I coined called UREAP, E-W-R-E-A-P. Have a look at that um, blog, uh, that article, because it gives you a general framework for what I think are realistic ways of gathering energy from the environment if you find yourself suddenly parachuted 
or suddenly want to start finding energy from the land, that is um, a good starting point, I think. There's also another article called the five um, survival plants every uh, forager should know about. That's really answering your question in part in terms of giving you a sort of top five list. That includes cattails, you've already mentioned cattails, it also includes burdock and you've mentioned burdock. Um, there are many other plants that you can get starch from, but they would be my, my top five. And um, perhaps I need to extend that with a top 10 or a top 15, and, and I think I may well do that and add it to my list. But have a look at that if you haven't seen it already, because it gives a bit about um, the different plants. Now, seasonality is a big issue, and um, I think that's just a fact of life. I think, unfortunately, um, we've become very accustomed to being able to get whatever plant food we want at any time of the year. Um, you go to the supermarket, you want carrots, you want parsnips, you want kiwi fruit, you want avocados, bananas, whatever you want, you can get them year round at your local store. Um, that's not the way that nature works. Um, we don't have the ability, or we, we didn't have the ability to go far enough to get the food or grow it in places until relatively recently and transport it everywhere. So we would have to go with the seasonality a lot more. And if you look at um, sort of peasant food, if you like, even during the period of farming, it's very seasonal. Before um, the old advent of farming, I'm sure, again, it was very seasonal because it couldn't have been anything else. It's perhaps people moved around a bit with the seasons, and that's certainly true in North America, and I'm sure it was true in Northern Europe as well, even though there's no written history of that, I'm sure people migrated to where resources were. There is some evidence of people moving to oak forests to harvest uh, acorns at the time of year when they were available. There's also evidence of people going to places where there were lots of hazelnuts and harvesting them at particular times of year. So I think the thing we have to remember is that we have become removed from being intrinsically involved with the seasons and it's very difficult for us then to jump into that with our, with our feet hitting the ground and running. Um, you know, this survival situation that a lot of people think about where we're suddenly in an environment without any resources and having to find calories from the land, we don't have anything stored from previous seasons. We don't have any resources stored up. We have to hit the ground running. And unfortunately, that means that if we missed a particular resource at a particular time of year that we could have saved, you know, we could have made fruit leathers, we could have stored nuts, we could have made uh, flour. Those things from previous seasons are not available to us. So the question you're asking, I think you need to adjust slightly, look at how you can gather resources where there are gluts and store them and preserve them. So nuts and fruit, etc., in the autumn to keep you over the winter and into the spring. How hunting and that goes together. That to me is the way that people live from the land, not from just living in that season with only the resources that were available in that season. I don't think in certainly in the northern temperate and the boreal zones, once you get out of the tropics, tropics, that you can just go out and get food, even in historical times when there was no farmland and it was all natural, even in historical times, I don't think you'd have just been able to go out and get any food that you needed at any time of the year. You'd have had to be thinking ahead and saving and storing and preserving and maybe moving around where the resources were. I think that's part of the answer. Um, I also think maybe the question is wrong in the first place that we're all asking of how do we replicate our current diet with what we can get from the land? Because frankly, um, 
again, we've become accustomed to eating certain things all the time, meat and two veg and meat and starch all the time. Well, when I've spent time with hunter-gatherers, that isn't the way that they live. They go and hunt and when they get meat, they eat a lot of meat and the rest of the time, if they can't get meat, there's fallback foods of starches where they're digging up tuberous roots and eating those and they're also eating fruit and other things when they're available. So I think maybe we have to adjust our expectations. Some of the time you're going to go hungry, some of the time you're going to be eating a lot of meat, other times you're going to be eating a lot of starches. There's a reason why our body stores fat, there's a reason why our body stores glycogen, and there's a reason why we can get by without very much food and producing ketones, etc., when we don't have very much carbohydrate. And we can keep our central nervous system going on those ketones, etc., etc., without the carbs in our system. It's not pleasant and it's something we're not used to in modern times, but it is possible. So I think we need to maybe be asking slightly different questions in the first place, rather than trying to have our bowl of pasta every day or the equivalent from nature. I don't think that's necessarily realistic. I think we're much, I think we're evolved to be able to deal with a much more variable diet and a much more variable quantity of those different macronutrients. So that would be the answer to that question. Um, and I think the last thing, maybe have a listen to that um, interview, that chat that I had with Alyssa Crittenden on one of my podcasts. I think it was episode 10. All of these things that I've referred to, I will put the links to in the show notes for this episode on my blog. So if you're watching this on YouTube, if you're listening to this on a podcast on, via iTunes or via Stitcher or any other platform such as SoundCloud, go to my blog, paulkirtley.co.uk, find episode 16 which is this episode um, they're all listed under ask paul kirtley episode 16 show notes all the links to the articles podcasts other things are all there for this episode thanks for the question uh, hopefully that gives you some indications of my thinking on that um, it's a very big subject but that's a good question mark and it's one i'm sure we'll come back to again thanks a lot So the next question is from Davey, and this question is about surplus gear for bushcraft. And Davey is from Buzzard Bushcraft, that's the name he goes under. And his question is, um, hi Paul, great videos as usual, really like the honest and no-nonsense answers. Um, my question is, how do you feel about using army surplus gear for bushcraft? Or do you believe it is better to invest in more expensive kit, uh, as in pay big once? Thanks, Davey at Buzzard Bushcraft. Um, well, that's an interesting question, and I've, I think my answer will not be a surprise to some people who've listened to all of the Ask Paul Kirtley episodes, because I've been asked questions that kind of touch on, on this in the past, um, although not necessarily specifically about army surplus gear in general. But my view is very much that there is no such thing as bushcraft gear. I think the nearest thing you get to bushcraft kit is a knife that's designed to do many of the tasks that we do on a regular basis under the umbrella of what we call bushcraft or woodcraft and camping, a knife that's designed to do those jobs efficiently um, without adding too much weight to our equipment. I think that's the nearest that we get to, to bushcraft equipment. Um, to me, bushcraft is a knowledge of nature. It's about which plants and trees can we use for different purposes. What can we eat? What can we use to make cordage? what's the best firewood, what's the best kindling, um, how do we use the trees and the plants and the, the, the nature that's around us to indicate direction. 
all of those things are bushcraft, hunting, trapping, all of that stuff, natural navigation, finding water, making it safe, that's all bushcraft. What kit you're using, what clothes you're wearing, I don't think have very much to do with it. Um, now, it's a personal choice uh, then, really, about what you wear. I think you need to choose the equipment and the clothing for the purposes of why you're there. Okay, so I'm currently in Patagonia. I'm here to do some hiking. Therefore, the clothing and the equipment that I have with me is representative of that. I've tried to choose from the clothing and equipment that I own that is gonna be suitable for the conditions that are here, which it's spring in South America at the moment. It's November. Um, I'm up in the mountains, although it's, I'm only about 400 meters above sea level here. The mountains behind me, uh, Fitzroy is three and a half thousand meters, uh, but over 10,000 feet, and there's an ice uh, field behind it, one of the, the largest ice fields on the planet, third largest after Greenland and Antarctica. The wind coming down from there is quite cold. It's windy, it's very dry here. Um, it's almost a desert, and um, there's a lot of water in the rivers and the streams, but it doesn't rain very much on this side of the mountains. It rains much more over in Chile with the weather coming off the Pacific. So I look at where I'm going and I look at the clothing I might need and the range of temperatures and the range of conditions and the activities that I'm undertaking. Does the kit need to be light? Does it need to be super durable? How long am I going to be out for? Does it need to last, you know, three weeks, four weeks, six months, you know, whatever it is. Um, and then I make a choice accordingly. Now, some of my kit might be, you know, generally might be army, army surplus. I certainly use some army surplus kit. I've got um, bivy bags, for example. I use PLC side pockets for some things. Um, I've got several different bivy bags. If we're talking about bivy bags, tarps. I've got some um, military tarps, but equally I've got really lightweight silicon nylon tarps um, and other equipment that I only use under certain circumstances. So I think you need to choose kit to suit what you're doing. So if you're just going to the woods and you're camping and you're practicing your woodcraft and you're practicing your bushcraft skills, as a lot of people who are watching this will be doing as their regular kind of bushcraft activity uh, or their bushcraft practice, um, rather than making a journey in a particular environment. If you're going to your local environment and you're fairly static, um, but you're doing it on a fairly regular basis, you just need stuff that's relatively inexpensive and stuff that is tough. It's gonna to last you. It's good investment from that perspective. Some of that kit, however, if you're doing a canoe trip in a wilderness area or you're doing a hiking trip, might be too heavy. It might be too heavy when it gets wet. Um, it's, uh, you know, it, it may not suit that style of journey very, very well. Equally, some of the stuff that I'm wearing, like this, this vaporized jacket, it's great for hiking around in this dry, windy environment. It's not so good near uh, fires. When I'm in the woods, in, in uh, closer to home, you know, in Sussex, where we run a lot of our courses, or in the Lake District, or in Scotland, where we run some of our activities, if we've got a fire, um, then, I'm going to be wearing wool closer to the, the fire because that's less likely to, to catch a spark and, 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 and be damaged. This isn't great. It's same with buffalo tops, which I really like as well. They're not fantastic near fire. It doesn't mean to say you're going to go up in flames if you get a spark on them, but be prepared for the fact that if you do get a spark on them, they're going to be damaged. Um, not to say that wool can't be damaged either. That's the thing. So you, you choose stuff that suits the environment and suits the activity and suits your budget. And I think you almost just make a, a matrix of durability, weight versus cost and find the kit that works. And 
I think some army surplus kit is great. I think some army surplus kit is crap. I think some modern um, Alpinist style outdoor kit is great. I think some of it's crap. Um, I think a lot of the stuff you get that's cheap in camping stores in general is pretty rubbish for everything. So you have to pick and choose. And just to reiterate, that's got nothing to do with bushcraft. Bushcraft is using natural resources around you, understanding, knowledge of nature, knowledge of the trees and the plants and the animals, how they all in integrate, how you can use them, that's bushcraft. What you want to wear and what you want to use while you're doing that is up to you and the circumstances you find yourself in while you're doing it. So hopefully that answers the question, Davey. Nobody should feel bad about using anything if they're getting out. The important thing is you get out and you learn more about your environment, you learn more about the skills and you appreciate it and you look after it and you try and pass that on to some other people. That's the important thing. Cheers, Davey, thanks for the question. Thanks for the opportunity to, uh, to, to share my thinking on that. Right, let's move on. Okay, this is a question from Mark. Uh, Mark's shop and Mark and I have the occasional discussion on Twitter, which is good. Um, but this time Mark has emailed me and he said, hi Paul, I was recently discussing someone's first overnight experience and their main problem was only having access to smaller sized deadfall. They spent a lot of time walking around collecting fuel and had to constantly feed and manage the fire because they had no larger logs that would burn over a long period. Are there any specific fire builds or general tips you can pass on for more efficient use of small firewood? Well, that's a good question. It's actually quite a general question, Mark. And so I'll give some general answers. First off, I would caveat it with, I don't know what you mean by small. I don't know whether you mean sort of, uh, you know, fine matchstick thin stuff, finger thickness, pencil thickness, you know, wrist thickness. Um, I'm assuming you mean somewhere in that zone, maybe finger thickness to wrist thickness, but you say deadfall, so maybe you mean some slightly bigger stuff. Um, I'm not sure, but let me tell you my general thinking on this. Um, first of all, it's best to collect as much firewood as you can just at the beginning. Have a blast, have a blitz, and um, whether you're on your own or as a group, just before it gets dark, certainly, and that's a common mistake for beginners, before it gets dark, just go out and get a lot of dead, dry, standing wood, as big as you can manage um, without being unreasonable. You've got to think ahead about how long you're going to be there as well. Um, I see way too many campfires left with massive logs put in, and I'm talking, you know, you know, three or four inches and beyond in diameter, so eight, ten centimeters and beyond, um, that are half burnt from one end or at the side, the left, they're unsightly. A lot of people burn stuff they find on the ground that's damp, either because it's been on the ground a long time or because it hasn't been there very long and therefore it's still wet because it was standing and living and it's gone down and it's still wet and it's been on the ground so it doesn't dry very quickly. People are chucking that stuff into a fire. It's getting kind of smouldery burns half burnt and then people are leaving the next day and leaving a mess because they can't do anything with it. So you should avoid that. Think about what you're doing. Think about ahead of time. Now in the boreal forest, of course, if you've seen articles that I've done about it living out of lean-to shelters or just using an emergency long log fire, of course you're going to need big logs but you're going to burn those in the way that they burn out in the night um, but they'll keep you warm they'll keep you alive in significantly sub-zero temperatures most campers particularly if we're talking about inexperienced campers and first-time campers they don't need firewood anywhere near that size now assuming they're not sleeping next to the fire for warmth you don't need a huge great fire you're probably going to need it for 
uh, cooking. You're probably going to need it to sit around in the evening and just have a nice warm atmosphere, jovial atmosphere, just a bit of camaraderie around the campfire, maybe a drink, you know, just to have a nice social time and then go to bed. So what you need, I would say generally, is stuff that isn't much bigger than wrist thickness. You're going to go through the stages, you're going to light your fire, small sticks or feather sticks to start off with, then you're going to put slightly bigger fuel on, so finger thickness, um, pencil thickness, finger thickness, then maybe onto wrist thickness. And if you want quite a blaze, lay them parallel. And then once you don't need quite a blaze, put them into a star-shaped fire so they burn more slowly. You can keep a kettle ticking over on that sort of thing. You can fry stuff on that sort of fire. You don't need a very big fire. So it sounds to me like uh, uh, what your friend has experienced is maybe not collecting too much, not collecting enough firewood, um, maybe trying to burn it all too quickly in a fire lay that's going to be quite flamey but it's going to burn through it quickly and then um, having to go and find some more. So what you want to do is collect plenty to start off with, you can always disperse it again afterwards, um, have a good blast to start off with, check out my small stick uh, fire lay lighting a fire with one match, I'll link to that in the show notes for people that are watching this, go to my blog um, and find that paulkirtley.co.uk in the show notes. So small stick fire lay, get your fire going, build it up, up to wrist thickness stuff and then use that for cooking as you need, use it for warmth as you need and then when you just need it to tick over, change the fire lay so it's a star fire, so have three or four sticks, just the ends, three or four little logs going into the fire, about wrist sort of thickness, no more than a few inches and that will tick over and that's going to be warm enough to keep, you know, three, four, five litre kettle ticking over, that will be fine, that's all you need and that's going to be very economical. The last thing I would say is just choose your firewood. Um, some stuff burns a lot quicker than others, so sweet chestnut, and there's a lot of that where I run some of my courses, that burns through quite quickly, but that's great split out um, and used for frying and cooking things quickly and for quick boiling. Um, it's not so good for slow roasting and slow cooking and keeping a, a kettle ticking over. There you want willow, you want beech, you want oak, you've got some good hot coals there, really dense uh, calorific firewood that's going to tick over for a long time, then you shouldn't need to be running around and finding firewood. You've got the right firewood and the right fire lay for doing the job that you need. But keep it simple and um, choose, go between that parallel fire lay and that star fire lay with some stuff that's about wrist thickness once you've got it going and you should be good um, and hopefully that helps. And as I say, I'll put a link to a couple of useful articles in the show notes, Mark, and maybe you can pass those on to your friend. Cheers. All right. Last question, and my hands are getting a little cold here sitting, so I'm gonna do the last question and then move on, finish my hike. Um, this is from Luke Fletcher, and his question is, um, I have two questions for you. After a bushcraft course I went on, the instructor couldn't tell me why I wasn't being successful with friction fire lighting. He also struggled to make fire by friction, which was disappointing, yeah. Are there particular dimensions for the different components of a bow drill set that would help? That's the first question. Second question, I find the connection that First Nations have with nature fascinating, especially Aboriginal and American Indian beliefs. Are you a religious man and have you been affected by any of the First Nation religions or beliefs? Thank you and can I say that until a few weeks ago I'd never heard of a podcast. Yours is the first I've ever heard and I could only wish I could listen to more. Um, well done on creating such a great resource. Um, I also 
appreciate your view on kit and believe that a few good items of kit are all you need to get out there and find your own connection with nature. Yeah, and that links nicely, Luke, with the previous question about um, surplus gear and what gear to use. Yeah, absolutely. You don't need a huge amount beyond just having some clothes and a backpack and a waterproof. Go out and enjoy. I completely agree. So first part of your question. Um, it is disappointing that a so-called instructor struggled with um, friction fire lighting. Although I will say we've all struggled with friction fire lighting at some, some stages. Uh, wood is very variable. Conditions are very variable. And I remember early on in my days of instructing, um, I was teaching a course and it was peeing it down with rain and it had done for several weeks, pretty much every day it had been raining and I was giving a bow drill demonstration and I got my bow drill set. I was a bit nervous about it, whether or not it would work. This was back in about 2007. Um, I was nervous about whether or not it would work. I had a test run with my bow drill set. It worked, I got a nice ember, happy, went to give the demonstration and could I hell as get that thing to work in front of the, the, the course. Course full of 16 people, very embarrassing. Um, I pretty much wore the drill out trying to get it to work. And it happened sometimes, it was wet, it was moist, it was, there's a lot of humidity in the air, it had been raining for days. Um, I was doing it under the shelter of a tree. It wasn't raining at that point, but the ground was damp. It just happens sometimes. Sometimes it just doesn't work, particularly when you're inexperienced. I'm a lot more experienced now, and I don't think that would happen to me now, but there's always a chance, you know, if you're having an off day, maybe something doesn't quite work, but you've got to, what you've got to do then is not be defeated by that and go back get make another set or at least make another drill have another go have a rest let the uh, let the energy recoup in your muscles let the lactic acid die down have a drink go back have another go when you're teaching um i think it's really really important that you not don't let that get you down so if any instructors watching this i'm sure people will uh, will um will relate to that. I remember the first course I went on, and I'm not gonna mention names, the first course I went on with two guys who are very you know, well established in the bushcraft field. They had trouble getting the bow drill working. It, again, it was very wet, very damp. It'd been raining all week. It becomes very difficult in those situations. But what impressed me was the fact they didn't give, it, didn't give up. They made another set and they got it working in the afternoon having tried to do it in the morning. And I've done the same myself. And so sometimes it's just hard. Yep, it's just hard. That's part of it. So not to denigrate that guy. I don't know who it is. I don't know the name. I don't know how experienced they are. Um, why, they, why it didn't work for you? Could be the same reasons as it didn't work for them. I don't know. I wasn't there. I don't know what conditions you've had. But in terms of dimensions, there is a tendency for some people to make them a little bit too thick. Um, I used to work with Ray Mears, and I know on his shows he makes them quite fat. A lot of people find them too, uh, too broad. Um, friction in a bow drill set is a function of pressure um, and that's a function of surface area and force. Yep. And the smaller you are, the less pressure you're going to create with a given area. It's like a stiletto heel versus an elephant standing on your foot. The stiletto heel will hurt more. So that's one of the issues. But what I would say is go to my blog at paulkirtley.co.uk and find an article on bow, uh, bow drill. It's called The Keys to Success and it's pretty much a troubleshooting 
um, article on how to get bow drill to work. So if you're having trouble getting your bow drill to work, whether it's squeaking, whether you're not getting smoke, whether you're getting brown um, dust rather than black dust, what woods to choose, all of those things, it's in that article. I wrote it quite a long time ago, but it's still as relevant today as it was when I wrote it. Um, again, I'll put a link in the show notes and you can, you can find it there. Um, bow drills, the key to success. Hopefully you find that very, very useful. Anybody that's watching this and, and for you in particular. And second part of your question, I'll just have another look at that. So the question about First Nations and Aboriginals and religion and spiritual beliefs. Yeah, um, so I personally, I don't subscribe to any uh, established religions. I'm not a religious person in that sense. Um, I have my views about those um, particular belief systems and I'm not going not to elaborate on that here. It's not the forum for that. It's, all, it's always a personal choice. Um, and I come from a position where my mother is an Anglican priest. She was one of the first priests to be ordained in the Anglican Church, in the Church of England. Um, but I'm not um, I'm not Christian, I don't consider myself Christian or Muslim or Jewish or any, anything else or Buddhist. Um, it's not something I find that I need in my life personally. And I know there'll be some people writing to me now saying, you need God in your life. I'm not interested, okay? I am not interested. Please don't waste your time uh, proselytizing and preaching to me, not interested. But I think if you need it in your life and if it helps, and if it helps you have a positive outlook and be a kinder person to other people, then that's a very valid thing for you to have in your life. Um, my, my problems with religion are that it seems to me that there's a lot of anger and separatism and hate caused by religions in the world, and that's unfortunate, and that's one of the reasons I don't want anything to do with them. Um, but in terms of spiritual connection, I certainly have a spiritual connection with nature. Um, I feel uh, very connected with nature when I'm in a natural environment. Um, do I think there's an intelligent design? Um, that's a big question um, and probably not what you're asking anyway. Um, but I have a lot of respect for nature. I do feel that there is a connection that goes deeper than just, you know, uh, a utilitarian use of, um, of natural materials, particularly in the context of bushcraft. And I'm very appreciative of the world that we live in. And I just wish that we would uh, do a better job of looking after all of these great resources that are around us um, that if we you know if we look after them well conserve us and we can live in harmony with for you know for generations to come unfortunately I see is going down a path now where we're very destructive and that that's quite painful we've talked about some of those things in previous episodes of Aspore Kirtley it's a little bit deep and a little bit heavy but um, yeah I've you know I've read a bit about native beliefs around different parts of the world and to me a lot of it is about a deep connection with nature and humility amongst nature one of the other things that I don't like about Christianity in particular is that um, it sets man above the other animals and above nature. I don't think we're above other animals. I don't think we're above nature. I don't think some super being put us here to have dominion over all the lesser beasts. We're, also, we're just a clever monkey um, that's quite good with our hands and have got a bigger brain than most animals on the planet. And we're able to use those things in combination to do things that other animals aren't and we're able to communicate maybe in ways that some other animals aren't. I don't think that makes us better or worse. We just are 
other animals and other plants just are and we should respect them as equals rather than seeing that we have dominion over everything and I think if we did then um, we would take more care of things and uh, that's something I think we need to look at very carefully going forwards because otherwise there's not going to be much nature left for us to appreciate if we carry on in the way that we are doing. So that probably doesn't quite answer your question but it, it expresses my views the best I can. That will resonate with some people, it will irritate other people, I make no apologies for that. Um, that's my view um, and um, hopefully that's, that illustrates um, my position and uh, thank you for asking the question. Um, and it's nice to have a variety of different questions, you know, we go from very practical, what jacket should I buy, what material, you know, through to how can I make my bow drill set work, to some more spiritual, philosophical questions. That's what I like about doing this show, that's what I like about having the questions, and I really, really appreciate you taking the time to listen to what I have to say, to sharing your views with me, certainly in the comments on YouTube, certainly in the comments on my blog. I know I don't have time to reply to every single one of them every single time. I do my best when I get in front of my phone, when I've got some connection, unlike here, there's no phone signal here, there's no Wi-Fi here, um, but um, there are times when I'm traveling, I can get onto those things and I can answer. And there are times when I'm at home, clearly when I can catch up with some of those things and I try and do the most I can. But I, you know, even if I don't answer your comments on my blog or on uh, Facebook or on YouTube or on Twitter, I do read them all. I do appreciate them and I do appreciate the questions. So keep them coming in by Twitter, hashtag AskPaulKirtley or send me an email or SpeakPipe via my blog. And if there are other people who you think would appreciate this, please send them a link um, to an appropriate community. So if you're on a Facebook community that would appreciate this um, format, whether you're listening to it or whether you're watching it, please share that link with them. That really helps me. It helps get more great questions onto the show and that in turn helps you. And also, just to, just to point one thing out, um, this is now available as a podcast on iTunes. And if you haven't, got it as a podcast if you like listening to podcasts from other people or you like listening to my main podcast the Paul Kirtley podcast please subscribe to the Ask Paul Kirtley podcast on iTunes that will help me out and if you could maybe leave me a little comment a star rating or a little comment or both that really really helps raise my uh, the profile of this show on iTunes and get it in front of other people who would also appreciate it so anything you can do if you like this show it's free I spend my time um, sharing my views with you and doing this show for you, the listeners and the viewers who ask the questions and want to know the answers to these things. Um, if I could ask one thing of you, as well as your attention, which is much appreciated, just share it far and wide and let's, uh, let's build this community of people who believe in the same things and are interested in the same things. So thanks again for watching. I'm going to continue with my hike now. As I say, hands are getting a little bit cold now and it's very breezy here and I will see you on the next episode. Take care. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Cheers.